It's time for Radio Cows, a weekly program from the Central Arkansas Library System. Every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. here on KABF 88.3 FM, we will share music from our archives, content from our resources, such as the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, and information about what's happening in the library system. We invite you to let us know what else you want to hear by contacting us at radiocows at cows.org. This program is presented by the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies and the Cows Community Outreach Department. For more information about Radio Cows, including links to resources mentioned in our segments, please visit the Butler Center's blog at butlercenter.org. In 2016 marks the 100th anniversary of the Pulitzer Prizes, given annually to celebrate excellence in journalism, fiction, nonfiction, playwriting, and poetry. The Arkansas Humanities Council is sponsoring several events this year to commemorate the Pulitzers and Arkansas Pulitzers winners and nominees, including a summer seminar for Arkansas teachers at the Butler Center. Earlier this spring, the Humanities Council hosted a talk by Southern Arkansas University history professor Ben Johnson on Arkansas's first Pulitzer Prize winner, poet John Gould Fletcher. Professor Johnson is the author of a biography of John Gould Fletcher, Fierce Solitude, A Life of John Gould Fletcher. He spoke in the Ron Robinson Theater on the Cal's main library campus. poet stood on the porch, excoriating the two men who approached the old house. It was April 1939, and this house outside of Little Rock on Barrett Road near Pinnacle Mountain did not have telephone service. Word had reached the offices of the Arkansas Gazette that John Gill Fletcher had been awarded the Pulitzer Prize in poetry, and the two men had been dispatched to let him know about it. Fletcher's angry response at the very approach likely did not surprise the two emissaries. He had returned six years earlier from England to Little Rock, the city where he had been born in 1886, and acquaintances in Little Rock had become accustomed to being greeted either by sullen silence or verbose, intense monologues. Fletcher's return to Little Rock from a long residence in Europe, a long residence that had begun in 1908, was unexpected. And in fact, his arrival was preceded without explanation, without telegram, without letter, with crates of books, massive crates of books that were stacked on the massive portico of the house where he had been born or where he had been raised. It was a house known still then as the Pike Mansion or the Pike House after its original owner, Albert Pike. And this house on Rock Street, of course, would later become designated as the Pike Fletcher Terry House. When Fletcher finally did arrive after the books, he was greeted, of course, by the family who lived there, his older sister, Adolphine Fletcher Terry, as well as by her husband, David, the United States Congressman, and their children. Now, the hurried, secretive nature of Fletcher's trip back to his childhood home, if it suggests to you a flight or escape, you would be correct. Because his immediate previous address before the return 
His previous address in London had been Bethlehem Royal Hospital, better known to you as Bedlam. And his release from Bedlam to escape to Little Rock, to escape to Arkansas, had been opposed up until the last moment of Fletcher's wife. His swings between anger and withdrawal, his, between gregariousness and emotional paralysis, arose from, the, arose from the depressive illness that had first become apparent during his college years. And yet, his fierce reaction to the visitors climbing up the rise, overlooking the Little Maumelle River in April of 1939, was not altogether a product of his fragile mental state. For on that day, the poet was facing another crisis. He was facing the prospect of a diminishing readership and a fall into obscurity. He was, with very great difficulty, attempting to draft a letter to his publisher, who was on the verge of throwing him over. As Fletcher wrote, as Fletcher wrote a friend, I see the end of my literary career. What had happened was that two books by Fletcher had been published the previous year. Two books that were intended to remind audiences of his very long career in the company of major literary figures and to reignite interest in his current output. One of these books was his autobiography, Life is My Song. And it included vivid, very particular accounts of his friendship and his ruptures with Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, Amy Lowell, and Alan Tate. The other volume that year was his selected poems. Again, something of a look at his career. Although, in reality, the selected poems was heavily weighted towards his early verse, which was understandable. For in his youth, in this era, before the Great War, Fletcher had attracted attention both for his own poetry and as a partisan in the vanguard of writers doing battle with the conventions of Victorian literature. But neither of these books, the autobiography or selected poems, had garnered numerous or even favorable reviews. And a reappraisal of Fletcher's contributions seemed unlikely. And besides that, the sales of the book were anemic, hence the publisher's unhappiness. Fletcher consistently throughout his life viewed spectacular uh, failure and dark oblivion as his fate. Obstacles and the unexpected change smothered him in gloom. In fact, he was always looking over his shoulder. He thought himself shadowed by a relentless destructive force. He fell back repeatedly on the metaphor of ghost to convey the unseen but palatable threat. His overwhelming fear of being taken governed his friendships, his relationships, and his alliances. For he often sought protection by binding himself to other people, followed by violent breaks as he perceived that his dependency was descending into emotional incarceration. In the 1914 series of poems entitled Ghost of an Old House, Fletcher wrote both about his deceased father and his mother as presence, as presence still alive, still wandering in the Pike Mansion that neither left the grounds nor ceased to haunt their only son. A passage from those poems included this, quote, all over the house there is a sense of futility, of minutes dragging slowly and repeating some worn out story of broken effort and desire. Memory and history for Fletcher trailed foreboding and lost causes. But we need to be careful. This comes close to sounding as if we're making a romance of Fletcher's disease. And I also will try to avoid and will avoid the old question of creativity and madness. 
although if pressed, I will admit to being skeptical of the notion that, for example, illness such as depression is uh, a prelude or even an accelerant for art. The lyrical descriptions that evoke a mind touched with fire must be balanced with the raw prose of the brutal consequences of depression. For example, Fletcher's committal to Bedlam in 1932 was preceded by his attempt to commit suicide by throwing himself from an upstairs window at his home in Kent. Taking up residence in Little Rock, following that episode, following the Bedlam uh, confinement, taking up residence in Little Rock was very much akin to Fletcher of the convalescence. But the repatriation was more than therapeutic. His return aligned with his recent attachment to a new movement of writers. Once identified with literary revolutions that had exploded traditions through radical forms of expression and new subjects, Fletcher had, by 1930, joined the self-styled agrarians who had mustered ranks in Nashville, Tennessee. The agrarians upheld the antebellum South as a model organic community and counterpoint to the dislocations and corrosiveness of industrial America. As was often the case, Fletcher's ties to this group of querulous Southerners, Alan Tate, John Crow Ransom, Dallin Davidson, were already fraying even before he himself became a newly resident Southerner. However, his goal to found solace in a tradition that nurtured a cohesive community and a balanced life would outlive his agrarian moment. Fletcher viewed his native state as still close enough to its rural and pre-modern foundation to remain salvageable. He saw its poverty and its isolation as a bulwark, a defense against the invasion of factories and newfangled technology. Fletcher eagerly in Arkansas became an advocate for the preservation of upland folk culture. He was an ally of the noted Ozark folklorist Vance Randolph, who of course was very active in recovering songs and stories throughout the hills. Fletcher would join in. Now Randolph understood that Fletcher did not have the discipline or the ability to bridge the gap with Ozark residents. He was not an effective collector, but Fletcher would gamely walk up the hills into the cabins, but his tailored English suits and his chronic habit of intently staring at the people would unnerve those to whom he was interviewing. Randolph, however, which who would later say that Fletcher was a fool, but a great man somehow. Randolph did appreciate Fletcher for continuing to call attention to the effort of cultural preservation and for insisting that knowledge of mountain culture was critical to the unfolding identity of the state throughout the 1930s. You are listening to a talk about Pulitzer Prize winner John Gould Fletcher, given by history professor Ben Johnson. Fletcher's second wife, Charlie Mae Simon, also encouraged him to see the landscape and its people as rich in possibilities and far from the benighted provincials that had been Fletcher's perspective as a young man. Fletcher had met Simon, also a writer, at the Perry County homestead that she shared with her husband, an artist. Well, her then husband. Soon after their respective divorces in 1936, Fletcher and Simon married and they contemplated moving to the cabin where Simon had lived and which had been the subject or would be the subject of one of the finest works to emerge from the 1930s homestead movement, Straw in the Sun. But instead, the couple moved 
to near Pinnacle Mountain, which Fletcher saw as, quote, a gateway of the Ozarks, into what was then known as the Butterfield House. Fletcher was very much taken with both the setting, the pastoral setting, as well as with the two-story colonial revival structure. While far less grand than the cavernous Pike Mansion, the Butterfield Place would have conveyed for Fletcher the quiet elegance of a lost era without the population of Family Ghost. Fletcher's anger at the two men who brought him the news of the Pulitzer Award that April afternoon in 1939, of course, quickly dissipated. As he wrote his sister, Adolphine, quote, I now have my miracle. He was convinced that he could now ride this wave to make a living through his writing, something he had failed to do. His livelihood had been based till now upon a trust established by his father upon when his father died. And Fletcher also, of course, hoped to be considered, based on the Pulitzer Prize, considered a figure of some importance into the core of American literati, literati, a person who would be quoted, a person who would matter. It did not work out. His publisher did go ahead and drop him, and Fletcher's expectations for soft jobs teaching college came to nothing, in part because he himself did not have a college degree. He did eventually secure another publisher, and his later poetry collections included some of his finest work. But he understood quite pointedly that he was mattering, that he mattered less and less to readers and to critics. Fletcher and Charlie May Simon did not remain long out in the country. By the end of the following year, 1940, they were staying in a rental on Arch Street, although they were frequently elsewhere, Santa Fe, Mexico, the McDowell Riders Colony in New Hampshire. But in 1941, they were back in Arkansas, scouting for a residence. Once again, they decided to go native and decided to go ahead and move to Simon's abandoned cabin in Perry County. Fletcher wrote a friend, quote, we were going off to Charlie May's old homestead in the Ozarks, about the wildest and most remote place I know. Again, Rex, this is Perry County. It will mean, li it will mean life a la Thoreau for us, with no Emerson nearby to give us encouragement and an occasional meal unprepared by our own hands to soften the rigors of our Walden. But we have to save money because we are going to try to build a home for ourselves this very summer nearer to Little Rock. Fortunately, before making arrangements to move, they actually visited the place. To the same correspondent, Fletcher described what he found. Quote, two days ago, we had all our belongings packed and we were ready for our summer move. But when we arrived at what we planned to be our journey's end, it was to discover that our house in the Ozarks had burned down, a total loss. This incident and Fletcher's descriptions of it as a journey's end became the seed for one of his best and best known poems, Journey Day. The poem reflected Fletcher's sadness over the bombing of the Luftwaffe of London, his home for many years, the terrors and sufferings of the spreading war, and his own blasted dreams for losing not only a safe haven, but also for a past beyond recovery. I'm going to do something dangerous here and read a passage of poetry from Journey Day to give you a sense. The way fades out into blackness. The doors and ravaged windows suddenly vanish. We turn a corner, find life in another shape confronting us once more. 
At the edge of the roadside, in the gathering darkness, we eat hurriedly, silent. The bitter bread of the homeless spread once more. We leave behind us nothing but empty echoes, ashes of rooms through which no footstep wanders, walls on which thought has written a wordless scroll no more. We tie in a string together new memories of this failure to add to the unseen future, left drifting in the lofty tides that haunt a far-shaped shore. At the edge of the roadside, night moves without stir or question. For some, loss unforgotten. For some, a hope once more. Now we have found afar, naught but the past slow blackening, to scattered ashes of hope upon the ridge crest, dreams thwarted by the fire amid the pine woods that looked upon a star once and no more. The house, however, they planned to build was indeed built. It was a bungalow of wood and stone designed by Max Mayer. Virtually every wall in the house were bookshelves, and each of the two writers had their own small studies. On the western edge of Little Rock, the house was like the Butterfield Place, both remote but not far from the city. It overlooked the Arkansas River and was surrounded by trees. The couple called it John's Wood. It suited a well-traveled, restless man who could not break from metropolitan culture even as he recoiled from it. Finally, and for the first time in his life, Fletcher had a place of his own. But the ghost would not relent. Or at least that's how Fletcher likely would have described this final chapter. The reality was grim and far from supernatural. By the spring of 1950, the ravages of his depression had caused him great, or was causing him great suffering. He was unable to write and he could not recall conversations or visits shortly after they occurred. On May 10, 1950, Charlie May awoke to find that her husband had already risen. When she could not find him, a search party was hastily put together. A neighbor found him face down in a small pond not far from John's Wood. His jacket was folded on the bank along with his hat. Charlie May Simon lived in John's Wood until her death in 1977. She continued to write well-received biographies, and she is widely known throughout the state thanks to the Charlie May Simon Award for, Charlie, uh, for Children's Literature. Yes, she is likely, I think, Bob, better known than the man I'm troubling you with tonight. The same is also certainly true of Adolphine Fletcher Terry, who, among many other achievements, organized in 1958, along with Vivian Brewer, the Women's Emergency Committee to Open Our Schools. This organization as many of you know, initiated the campaign to have the citizens of Little Rock reverse the referendum that had shuttered the city schools to preserve segregation. The Pike Fletcher Terry Mansion, just up the road, where Fletcher's uh, funeral services were conducted, was deeded by the family to the Arkansas Arts Center. Johnswood is a private residence where Charlotte and Bob Brown currently live. The Butterfield House belongs to the Arkansas Parks and Tourism. If you Google Butterfield Place, Roland, Arkansas, at the top of the list of the links will come a site entitled The Spirit Seekers. It is a group who identify and go out and check haunted houses. And they will post, they will post their findings on this website. In the case of the Butterfield House, the paranormal sleuths reported, quote, 
A former resident often complained that someone washed him from the stairway, stairwell and that there was a cold spot on the landing. Our investigation confirmed that indeed there are spirits present. Indeed, I'm sure there are. Thank you. That was Southern Arkansas University history professor Ben Johnson speaking on Arkansas's first Pulitzer Prize winner, poet John Gould Fletcher. As part of a year-long observance of the 100th anniversary of the Pulitzer Prizes, sponsored by the Arkansas Humanities Council. Ben Johnson is an authority on Fletcher's life and work. You can check out his book, Fierce Solitude, A Life of John Gould Fletcher, at many Cal's locations. This month in Arkansas history. On June 1, 1864, federal officials arrested composer Ferdinand Zellner and several other residents at his boarding house in St. Louis, Missouri. They were charged with being members of a secret society plotting the secession of Missouri. He was later released. Zellner lived in Fayetteville from 1852 until 1863 and wrote a piece of music called the Fayetteville Polka, which is believed to be the first Arkansas composition to be published as sheet music. CalsCon is the Central Arkansas Library System's annual celebration of all things fandom. Integral to this free, family-friendly event is a series of discussion panels we host each year, focusing on topics relevant to fan interests. One of those panel topics for CalsCon 2016 was Star Trek. Created by Gene Roddenberry in 1966, this iconic sci-fi series has boldly gone through decades of evolution, including the recent film reboots directed by J.J. Abrams. Our panelists for this discussion were Barbara Adams, Tony Bates, Warren Jones, and John McKay, moderated by Brooks Cato. Let's listen as they share some thoughts and insights about Star Trek, many fans' favorite final frontier for 50 years in counting. I think that's part of what's so compelling about Star Trek is that um, we don't see perfect characters. None of them, you know, even the things that they excel at, they're still flawed in some way in, in what they excel at or the thing that makes them excel is a flaw in other ways, right? So, you know, Spock's logic is supposed to be perfect, but the fact that he's so logical just well, grates on others. Right. His yeah, logic yeah. wasn't perfect because he was half human. So he could never reach perfect logic, which is what made you propel toward the interest of the character and the fact that, you know, on one half he was trying to be the perfect Vulcan, but he always had to deal with his human side. And that made him an interesting character. And of course, McCoy was always the one stabbing at his human side, making him remind him that that human side's never going to go away. And that interaction between those two characters was a favorite part of the episodes to me. Um, you could argue that Data was supposed to be a perfect character. He didn't have emotions to mess him up. He had superhuman strength. 
and all the intelligence in the world. But still, there were things he could not excel at because he didn't have emotions, because he had limitations in not understanding, say, social mores. He had to learn those things, and he did learn those things over the years. And that's what all the Star Trek characters do, is they progress and they learn, and they show us weaknesses in ourselves and how we can overcome those weaknesses. So along the same lines of what uh, Barbara was talking a little bit there, and then also earlier in, in, in mentioning that Star Trek really puts forward these compelling values, uh, Star Trek often occupies a space that manages to both embrace and push the culture of the day. For example, Star Trek lore points out that Uhura was the first African-American woman to appear on television in any kind of role of leadership. Her presence was so influential that uh, when Ms. Nichols prepared to leave the show, Martin Luther King Jr. personally contacted her and encouraged her to stay on because Uhura had become too important, too valuable a symbol for the civil rights movement to lose. What are some other moments where Star Trek uh, has affected cultural change? I wrestle with this one a little bit, you know, because Star Trek has always really embraced diversity, at least it tried to. Um, it even, you know, it even embraced feminism a little bit in the 60s, but, you know, they didn't push that envelope very hard. <laughs> they, they didn't quite push that envelope uh, the way they did... Uh, you know, racial diversity with like, uh, you know, introducing, you know, an Asian character piloting the ship, a Scotsman in the engineer room, a Russian, you know, on, on the bridge. And, 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 and again, that's part of it being in the 60s too, in the, in the time period. So, uh, you know, where I think, I'm going back to a personal perspective when I was 10 years old watching Star Trek for the first time and, and starting to inform my way in the universe or my way in the world. Uh, all, and looking back on it, I see that it's a representation of the Vietnam War that was going on at the time. There are a lot of themes of war and peace. You know, beyond just why can't we all get along, there's why do we have to fight, you know? And that was a really good question. In fact, there's a What's the episode where uh, where Kirk is um, telling people, you know, we're all barbaric, but we have to choose. I'm not going to kill today. You know, it, it's like, you know, an alcoholic. I'm not going to drink today, but, you know, I'm just not going to kill today. And and I think that's the that's the perspective that, that Star Trek had, even in dealings with Cold War era politics with the Klingons, that peace is preferable to war. But sometimes we don't have a choice, and we have to meet that challenge. But they were one of the few shows, I think, at the time really espousing that point, that peace is preferable to war in a responsible way. You know, they, they didn't have, you know, unrealistic expectations about what war was, but I think, I think that was Gene's message then, peace is preferable to war. And... Even later, in, in Deep Space Nine and The Next Generation, when, they're, uh, when they introduce the Maquis, you know, who, who are named after French resistance fighters from World War II trying to expel Nazis from, from France. But this time, it is humans trying to expel Cardassians from an area of space. And 
what's the difference between a, a freedom fighter and a terrorist? And they really go down that road with those those episodes. For me, I, I I feel like that the big social commentary of Star Trek through all of its iterations is war and peace. And at its best, it's really thought provoking of what is peace worth to us, and what happens when we lose that. And 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 I think it's a good commentary. Um. I have to agree with all of those things, as well as um, I think another thing that we can look at or another aspect that we can look at that Star Trek, if you will, has promoted into our society is the use of technology. Um, and the, 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 you know, they had the, they had the tricorders and they had the phasers in the original episode and they spoke to the computer rather than having to input stuff into the computer. And now we have cell phones. You know, what started out as a computer on our desk has now become a cell phone we carry around on us. Um, and it basically can be a tricorder. It can tell you the weather. It can tell you where you are. It'll tell other people where you are. Um, I resisted getting a cell phone for a really long time. Finally have one. Um, and my reason for not getting one for so many years was I would tell people is, I don't feel the need to be that attached to the rest of the human race. They can leave a message on my home phone. <laughs> but I have friends who insist, well, what if we want to be that attached to you? <laughs> and that's what some people kind of dispel about technology, and that's why some of the people dislike the Borg. And other people, of course, love the Borg. They love the technology. Um, and that's why some people don't like the Borg, is the fact that they're all interconnected. It's one hive society. Um, but technology, you know, is something that we, you know, you could say we started off very slowly with, with things on the countertop, you know, mixers, um, electrical devices that we use in our kitchen, and they've slowly crept into every room of the house. So technology and the ability to have control of technology from a distance. Now, we can now set our alarms at our homes with our cell phones. Um, that's been one aspect of what Star Trek has introduced into our culture or, or is, um, you could say, is blamed for some of the reasons that we like our little gadgets because we watched Star Trek and we watched other sci-fi series growing up and they always had little gadgets. They had the tricorders, the phasers, um, tools. We've always been something that wanted to use tools. So technology is a good tool if we use it right. And I think in a positive way, which is what Gene has always showed us with Star Trek, is that tools can be used in a positive way and don't necessarily have to be bad. And, you know, in growing our culture, you know, we have to use tools. We've always used tools, and so they're t positive tools with technology. While you're passing the mic down, there's a story that when uh, Nokia introduced their first flip phone, um, they, you know, passed it around to different, uh, different groups to, to try it out and get some feedback from consumers. And they said, no, this is all wrong. It doesn't work like a communicator. Well, that was why I wanted, why I liked the show was technology. Oh. You know, and yeah, cell phones, I love that. 
<clears throat> now, people knowing where I am, I don't like that so much. Uh, you know, and I think that's, you know, like she was saying, you know, they covered that in the show uh, dealing with technology. And they, they also showed how technology can be misused by groups uh, and how, you know, technology could be used, uh, you know, in a primitive society uh, used for, you know, as a weapon and, you know, how that could be a bad thing you know, like arming, you know, and it goes back to, I guess, you know, I don't know about for the Vietnam War, but, uh, you know, giving people who uh, are not used to technology the technology to wage war, uh, you know, and the problems with that. Yeah, you, know, you were talking about the Nokia uh, iPad and iPods were based off the, the, uh, the pads and the devices as well. They said, well, this needs to be like Star Trek. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of technology, and this is how we use it. And that's one thing they talked about, and one thing he was just talking about was uh, it could be used for good or evil uh, purposes, depending on what your goals are. Uh, so we, we got to experience with that without having to go through those problems. Uh, but, yeah, when he was talking about the, the Maquis and being terrorists, and that's a point of view depending on which side that you're on. Uh, so for the Maquis, they weren't terrorists, they were rebels. Uh, but for the Federation, they were terrorists. So, uh, And that's one problem that we're going through right now, uh, as, as the world is going through right now. Um, so it, again, it just depends on which side you're on, but uh, there's so much intrigue that we emulate and simulate uh, that we're running into very similar problems as Trek has done. Uh, so again, we, we're not having to live through a lot, a lot of that because we can see what can happen. That was an excerpt from our CalsCon 2016 panel on Star Trek with panelists Barbara Adams, Tony Bates, Warren Jones, and John McKay, moderated by Brooks Cato. For more CalsCon 2016 fan discussion on topics such as Disney and feminism, Studio Ghibli, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and Star Wars, be sure to catch future broadcasts of Radio Cows and check out the Radio Cows podcast on iTunes. Meanwhile, if you'd like to learn more about CalsCon, the library system's free annual celebration of all things fandom, please send an email to Laura Neal. L-N-E-A-L-E at cows.org. Finally, for any Trekkies who may be interested in continuing the discussion, you're welcome to join Starbase McMath, a Star Trek fan group that meets at the McMath Library on the third Wednesday of each month at 6.30 p.m. River Market Books and Gifts, the Central Arkansas Library System's gently read bookstore, offers patrons a wide selection of gently read books at amazingly low prices. New books, rare collectible books, and unique gift items are also available. 
Friends of Central Arkansas Libraries members receive a 20% discount on all purchases. River Market Books and Gifts is located in the Cox Creative Center, 120 River Market Avenue, on the main library campus in the River Market District. From time to time, we run excerpts of oral history interviews conducted by former students in the UALR Master Program in Public History. This week, we'll hear from a 2016 interview by Josh Couch with Ruth Shepard, who has been the Executive Director of Just Communities of Arkansas since 2000. Shepard was born in Oklahoma City and graduated from Oklahoma State University. Before her current position at Just Communities Arkansas, she was a high school English teacher and adjunct composition professor at UALR. She also worked for the United Way. Many professionals had influences early on that impacted the road that they chose. Were there any influences early in your uh, career? Oh, over and over and over and over again. Um, starting with key teachers all along. Uh, key teachers who, for the most part, built my self-esteem, told me um, that I was really good at something or fostered you know, whatever skills or talents that they saw. Um, some the other way. I remember a, um, one of my one of my professors in graduate school told me one day that I was not a good writer, and it was devastating at the time. And of course, um, if he were still alive, I would sure like to show him some of the things <laughs> I've written since then. But for the most part, you know, those really positive influences of saying, "Hey, you know." you're good at being an actress. Why don't you come and try out for the play? Or, you know, why don't you serve on the paper staff? Or you did a good job on that project or whatever. So a lot of really good teachers all along the way. Lots of good influences through uh, Sunday school teachers and just adults who cared. I hadn't thought of this in years, but um, when I was probably a young teen, um, the preacher's wife asked me if I would help her do her hair or something. I mean, something really um, just ordinary. And I said, well, sure. And she said, and I will pay you for it. And I said, oh, well, you don't have to pay me. And she said, oh, no, Ruth, when you do work, you deserve to be paid. So, um, you know, that kind of feedback that what you do is valuable and you know, we're going to recognize that. Oh, wow. When I was only 12, I told my dad, well, I, I, I told my parents, um, I want to get a job. I want to go to work at Sherman's Drive-In, which was just a little neighborhood uh, hamburger spot. And my mom said, oh, you couldn't possibly do that. And my dad said, why not? And I want to tell you, it was, it was, it was an awful job. I worked, um, <laughs> I worked eight-hour shifts, and I was a car hop. For an hour and then I washed dishes for an hour and this was before they had those really great you know things where you wash the dishes where you run the dishes through the big machine mm -hmm. no we washed them by hand and then I car hopped for an hour and then I washed dishes and this went on for eight hours and I made two dollars in salary I mean it was just a horrible job you went home smelling like hamburger grease 
uh, with red hands, obviously, and with the you know the kind of the t taste of rancid ketchup in your nostrils because of, of the hot summers and all of that. But I took all of the money that I earned that summer, and I worked hard and I worked all summer. I took all of the money and I got to spend it on two new pairs of really cool shoes and a couple of like um, outfit things. And I, I don't remember what the outfits were. I remember the shoes. One was a red pair and one was a green pair. I mean, you know, that was so cool. So it was, it, that was learning that you could do hard work, you could earn money, you could then, some of it could be your own. And that's kind of how that turned out because um, before that I'd never had really much money that was my own. And later I felt kind of guilty about it because I thought, gosh, you know, my family struggles a lot with money and I just took that and, and took it for myself. Mm -hmm. But, you know, lesson learned. N probably never didn't work from then on, and then I worked all through college, because uh, when I got ready to go to college, there really wasn't the money to send me. And so I just said, well, I'm gonna figure this out. And I had a, a high school counselor, and this, this guy has to be a real hero for me, because I was sitting in his office talking about, well, I wanna go to Oklahoma State University. And we were talking about, well, how was I gonna get there? And we'd been, who, who knows what all we'd been talking about, but he said, Ruth, do you itch a lot? And I went, well, yeah, I do. And he said, you know what? You may have allergies. And so he sent me to an allergist. And in fact, I had a lot of allergies because they did the little prick test where they, they prick you all over your back. And I got a college scholarship based on the fact that I had allergies. And all I had to do was keep my grades up like it probably a 2.8 or a 3-point or something like that, and I'd take a full load. You know, you couldn't drop below a certain number of hours. But I had a tuition, I had tuition paid for four years. So it motivated me, obviously, to take a full load, to make good grades, and to get out in four years. You've, uh, you've already touched on this subject a little bit, but uh, how has being located in Arkansas impacted your experiences with nonprofit work? Well, the coolest thing, the very coolest thing, is that Arkansas is a small state. And so you can get to know uh, the movers and shakers. I mean, I, you know, a, a great example, and, and anybody my, my age who's lived here as long as I have probably has, this, or who's lived in Little Rock anyway, has the similar experience. I, when I, back in the days when I worked at United Way and I would go to national meetings or something, they go, you really know Hillary and Bill? And I go, yeah, we really know Hillary and Bill. You know, yeah, we had dinner with them at our friend's house the other night. Yeah, our son was, you know, in the swimming pool with Chelsea the other day or, you know. So that's just an example of how cool it is to live in a state the size of Little Rock. Because you can pick up the phone and, you know, talk to someone who has authority and who, you know, and that I just think, I, I frequently think, wow, if, if I'd made a different choice back in the day when I decided to move to Little Rock, if I'd moved to a larger city, or I hadn't had those original connections that I had here, because when I first came here, I had my mother and father-in-law for my first marriage. And then once I got married again, a year and a half later, I had another set of in-laws who were well-connected. And in fact, this is, a, this is a great little anecdote. When I ran for the school board 
1984, my mother-in-law sent out hundreds of postcards and, you know, to ask people to vote for me. And she didn't write, Ruth is really well qualified. She's really smart. She really cares about kids. She, she wrote on every one of those postcards, she wrote, please vote for our Ruth. I mean, isn't that sweet? That is. And don't you know, they probably went and voted for our Ruth. I mean, so so that's that's one of the coolest things about Arkansas is that it's small enough, and if you get your if you if you get out there, you can really really make a difference, and you can meet people who can make a bigger difference. And um, so I love that. I I I signed up to recently signed up to serve on a advisory board for the College of Public Health because it so aligns with our mission, i.e. let's, let's, let, let's create a, a community that's healthy for everybody, you know, kind of like what we would like. And I went to one of their UAMS big luncheons where they invite all their advisory board members. And I'm sitting there next to a business owner, philanthropist woman from Northwest Arkansas who's like a legend in my mind. And I went, oh, hi. You know, I never met her before, but here I was, and I had the opportunity to meet her. Years ago, and this happened when I was running for the school board, too, I went to a, oh, it's the, it's the Black Ministerial Alliance breakfast. And I, you know, went in and sat down to have breakfast and, and realized I was sitting next to Ernest Green, you know, the first black graduate of Central High School. And those kinds of things wouldn't happen in a bigger state or in a bigger community. So that's my favorite thing about being here is that you really can get involved and you really can make a difference if you get yourself out there because people are accessible and they live just down the street or around the corner or someone who knows them does. So. That was an excerpt of an oral history interview by Josh Couch, a student at UALR's master program in public history. Josh interviewed Ruth Shepard, the executive director of Just Communities of Arkansas. The entire interview is available at arstudies.org. for Chewing the Fat with Rex and Paul, a regular feature on Radio Cows. That's Rex Nelson, who's head of corporate communications for Simmons Bank and who writes the food blog Southern Fried, and Paul Austin, who's executive director of the Arkansas Humanities Council, talking about Arkansas food, festivals, and folks. This week, Rex and Paul continue their epic tale of visiting the annual meeting of the Delta Council in Cleveland, Mississippi. So we go on down, we go to the meeting, uh, Senator from Kansas speaks, uh, they get through right at 12 o'clock though, yeah. because the tradition is you go out onto the quadrangle, the lawn, yeah. there at Delta State University, and you have the catfish dinner. They'll yeah. they'll send tickets when they, if you're on the list. Got to be on the list. Got to be on now. the list. So, now, Rex, well, I have well, to say. sound important because I'm on the list. But I was a little disappointed dinner. at the meeting because it turns out they have uh, spotters. Mm-hmm. 
and who they identify and uh, give a congratulatory round of applause. And the spotters identify people who are going to get awards for their dress. Cotton. They got to be cotton. cotton. Got to be outfits, cotton. Yeah, and the, so there the were cotton, cotton three or four fish. men uh, awarded uh, up for the sartorial uh, rewards, and the women as well. I forget the categories, but they had several categories. Uh, but they have spotters who walk around and, I guess, decide who it is and who they're take their names. Who they're going to nominate, yeah. I kind of thought maybe they would call my name, but, yeah. but they didn't, alas. They do, they, do, uh, they do honor one female and one male. Now, now you don't think the, the females are judged on their looks in addition to the dresses they have on, do you? Well, I don't know about that, but I do know one of the finalists was the state treasurer. Convenient how that <laughs> worked true. out. Yeah, that's true. So I was surprised there, the senator didn't make the Yeah, finalists. there are there are some political implications <laughs> there also. But usually it's a very young lady and, yeah. frankly, a very nice-looking young lady uh, yeah, that wins right, that contest. Right. Yeah. And what, so they had the guys stand up as the ladies, but the guys kind of like, uh didn't feel real comfortable standing up. And the guy that won was like, great, just what I need. I'm going to hear about this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it was warmer this time. The sun wasn't as humid. Last year right. it was miserable. And it rained, but this time the rain had gone and and uh, they had more lines available because, you know, we don't like to wait on our food. Yes. Well, just a delightful lunch that we had. We sat with an old friend of mine with whom I used to work at the Delta Regional Authority, who frankly is one of the top lobbyists in Mississippi now named Hayes Dent. I think that's a great Delta name. Lives in Yazoo City. But Ole Miss boy. Hayes Dent had with him White Emmerich. The Emmerich family, if anybody knows the newspaper business in the South, a uh, long time, go back to the 1920s, owning newspapers. They own 27, I think White yeah. told me, yeah. newspapers in Mississippi. And then we were joined by David Bowen, who was a congressman from Mississippi for 10 years, starting in 1973. Congressman Bowen attended high school there in Cleveland, Mississippi, but he got his undergraduate degree at Harvard and his graduate degree at Oxford in England. Yeah. So uh, yeah. a, a very – and I got to reading about the congressman later after he left office, uh, worked for a think tank, and then he taught again. He had been a teacher before at Millsaps and Mississippi College, but he taught some more. He is a playwright. He has written and produced several plays, and yeah. he is a very noted black and white photographer. So yeah. I, I think he could be described as a true renaissance, true renaissance man. man. Well, he just had stories. He told uh, story after story about old Senator Eastland and accompanied Most of which we accent. can't repeat on the uh, radio. Almost none of them can we repeat, <laughs> unfortunately. But they, it was great. And with between him and Hayes and the newspaper man, we had an hour and a half of some good storytelling and laughing. And, and the congressman is well into his 80s mm-hmm. and was just a fascinating character an old democrat old southern southern democrat yep. got back out when and, there were such things back, got out in 83 decided not to run again yeah he wasn't beat he just decided yeah. not to run again yeah. and republican webster franklin won that and webb franklin served and there's been republicans in that seat ever since yeah, yeah. i believe he was yeah, david bowen what a fascinating character we could stay there all day are we not we talked about this a little bit on our our road trip uh, is it just me are we losing a lot of the colorful storytelling characters in American politics. I think you're right. I I don't think there's any doubt about it. You know, you, uh, who was our, uh, Nat Murphy and these old guys. (laughs) I mean, you just, these people never get elected now. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid we've sanitized it a little too much and maybe it's social media and I don't know, 
people maybe could get away with being eccentric because most people didn't know what they were doing. Exactly. Now you know everything that happens. Oh yeah, people but I can think shoot we're, you with a phone at any time. I think we're worse for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be honest with you, I think it it add, uh, added something that we probably need these days, and I think it helped with the collegiality and the bipartisanship, and, and you just don't hear much of that, not just state, but certainly in federal. Yeah, I think, and, and there are probably some upsides, but there are certainly downsides in losing the storytelling ability and the color because in an era when anybody can record you on a telephone, really unbeknownst to you, yeah. I find our elected officials very guarded now. Very guarded, yeah. And frankly, kind of boring. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can stay there all day yeah. listening to those guys talk. Yeah. And, and I course, like, I'm an old newspaper man. Yeah. I like colorful characters. And of course, Hayes kept saying, Rex, tell us this story. And he raised that his favorite stories uh, that you had told him over the years. He wanted to hear that. But th- what was also interesting was that he was talking to the newspaper guy and he said, uh, he said, hey, you need to go to Little Rock. Mm-hmm. He said, Little Rock has got what Jackson wants, mm-hmm. what they're doing in, in Little Rock. He said, it's a thousand times better than what's happening in Jackson. And the city fathers need to go to Little Rock and figure out how they did it, which I thought was a wonderful compliment. Oh, absolutely. He was very complimentary of our downtown uh, here in Little Rock. And has often told me that uh, Hayes would come here a lot when he was working for the Delta Regional Authority, because then Governor Mike Huckabee was the state co-chairman of the DRA, and so would come here to meet with the governor and just fell in love with the city. And sometimes you have to go elsewhere and hear somebody out of state to really appreciate what has happened. You're listening to Chewing the Fat with Rex Nelson and Paul Austin on Radio Cows and KABF 88.3 Little Rock. Now, talking about nice things, here we are in Cleveland, a city of 15,000 at most. We're on the campus of Delta State University And yet we went to the new Grammy Museum, Mississippi, the first Grammy Museum outside of Los Angeles. The main Grammy Museum's at L.A. Live in downtown Los Angeles, but with Mississippi's deep music heritage, a a heritage that, of course, reaches well over into the Arkansas Delta. But they have established kind of an outlet of the Grammy Museum, and I think you would agree with me, it's first class all the way. First class. I was just blown away. by everything that was there. Uh, you're astonished by how many famous recording artists came out of the Delta and Mississippi and Arkansas Delta and four-fifths of the people in there, it seemed like, had Arkansas roots and maybe they were born in Mississippi, maybe not. But uh, it's one of those places that you can't get enough of in one day. You've got to go back many times. Now, again, I was thinking about this after we got home. I was a little disappointed, too, because there was an iconic performance 20 years ago, probably, or maybe 30, at the Native American Employment and Training Conference in Albuquerque when my old friend from the Creek Nation, Curtis Hicks, (laughs) and uh, myself, me, and three or four others performed uh, Percy Sledge, When a Man Loves a Woman. <laughs> I'm glad I missed that. We called ourselves Bull and the Longhorns. Curtis's nickname was Bull. And I thought it was one of the great performances of all time. That was not there, however, that I could find. I, I tried to listen to it. But you could sit down at, well, they had multiple booths that you could go in and do oh, yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. And then and, it had and a wall the main full of theater, things. though, has this montage of the great 
performances in the history of the Grammy yeah. Awards. Yeah. And I could have watched it several times. Yeah. For, uh, yeah. No, no narration, mm-hmm. nothing, just, just a montage. Just a montage from early to recent. Yeah. And I sat at one of the tables and you could just listen to songs all day. You'd never mm-hmm. leave. And they had, they also had a thing where you could, um, it's like a, a band stage. You could go up and actually play the drum, put on headphones and actually play the drums, the guitars or piano or whatever you wanted to. And uh, it was full of school groups and, and others. Uh, just a wonderful, and it's only been open a couple of months. A couple Pretty months, new, yes. Yeah. It opened this spring. And uh, it is, to those listening, it is well worth a road trip to the Mississippi yeah. Delta. If you like music at all. Another of the films we watched was kind of a behind-the-scenes uh, of Tina Turner preparing yeah, yeah. Uh, for a performance at yeah. the Grammy Awards and all the work that goes into that. They do four days out and then three right, days out and right. two days out. Yeah. And they had a whole room uh, dedicated to the Beatles and their coming to the United States, which was fascinating. Uh, Ed Sullivan had their performance at the Ed Sullivan Show. And uh, I just thought it was wonderfully done. Yeah. I, I was mentioning to you um, that. Uh, my sister, who who is nine years older than I am, and I I did not remember this at all, but she had recently reminded me that she had gone when the Beatles performed in Memphis in 1966, I yeah. guess it was. I yeah. looked up the date. I didn't even realize they had done when they were at that fever pitch yeah. in Memphis. But my, my sister was a teenager at the time, and... Uh, had a dear friend uh, there in Arkadelphia named Celia Cup, and the reason that we got to talking about this is because her father, Cecil Cup uh, Jr., recently passed away. Really well-known Arkansas banker and businessman uh, who had had Arkansas Bank and Trust Company there in Hot yeah. Springs. He and his father had had Citizens Bank in Arkadelphia before that. But we were talking about the Cups, and Linda said, uh, "Well, Mr. Cup drove me to Memphis. Uh, Celia and I." In his new GTO. <laughs> I hadn't thought of a GTO in a long time. A goat. And we call yeah, it a yeah, goat. Yeah, we thought we were it <laughs> and uh, went to this, but she was a bit disappointing because all she could really hear were other screaming teenage girls <laughs> around her rather than actually hearing the Beatles. Yeah. So she was there. It was at the, at the old Mid South Coliseum, Coliseum. Which would, wouldn't have been old at the time. Yeah. It would have been new at the time. Yeah, it would have been new. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I can remember. Uh, when I was watching the film of them on uh, Ed Sullivan, you know, they were controversial. The, the, our parents and grandparents just thought it was oh, long haired the worst thing on earth. And their hair was barely over their ears. <laughs> barely. It would be considered like really short now. Uh-huh. But we had uh, at Sloan Hendricks at Imboden. You know, Rex, I'm from Imboden. I didn't know. Really? You know. Yeah. Imboden, Arkansas. Never guessed. Uh, we had a group to to do sort of a pantomime of. An early version of karaoke of the Beatles. Well, it was the girls that did it because they had the long hair. They had hair. the hair. Yeah, yeah it looked the like right the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was—I remember we were talking about uh, their iconic uh, presence at the uh, on the Ed Sullivan Show, and everybody talks about seeing it. And I used to think I'd say, "Yeah, I remember that," but I got to thinking, you know, I don't think I saw that. Mm-hmm. For one thing, it was Sunday night. We were training. You were at the First Baptist First Church Baptist of Embogen. Yeah, mm-hmm. we weren't watching Ed Sullivan. Uh, but it's one of those that you've seen so much, you think. You think what you did see. Yeah. It. yeah. Like what, in three million time. people saw Babe Ruth yeah. uh, call the home run in the, yeah. at Wrigley Field and that sort of thing. Yeah. 
but now I know my sister, and I don't know how that story had never come up through the years, but now I know that she did see the Beatles when they made their Mid-South stop in Memphis there during their, during their 1966 tour. You know, it's about that time, maybe earlier, that uh, I had a little guilt that won eighth place in the Mid-South, mm-hmm. a little do-rock guilt at the Mid-South Fair, which was a big deal. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if they have the Mid-South Fair anymore. Is yeah. that Memphis in May, maybe? Is that when that is? I don't even know. Yeah. I think they still have the fair, but I, I think it's maybe in the fall. Memphis in May, May mainly is downtown and yeah. not at, at the fairgrounds. Yeah. Yeah. But the old Mid-South Coliseum, they're trying to decide what to do with it. The building still sits there. Yeah. Uh, on the well, they've had it's, success with it's the It's kind of to Memphis what Barton is to Little yeah. Rock, an old yeah. arena on the fairgrounds. Don't know what to do. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So we went to the Grammy Museum, and as I said, it is well worth the trip. That's Chewing the Fat with Rex and Paul, a regular feature on Radio Cows. With Rex Nelson, head of corporate communications for Simmons Bank and the writer of the food blog Southern Fried, and Paul Austin, executive director of the Arkansas Humanities Council. This is KABF in Little Rock, 88.3, the voice of the people in central Arkansas. Now let's celebrate Arkansas musician Ben Nichols and his solo career apart from his band, Lucero. Singer-songwriter and guitarist Ben Nichols is the frontman for the Memphis alt-country band Lucero. Lucero formed in 1998, and the band has released more than a dozen albums since 2001, mostly on their own label. Each album has drawn praise for the group's gritty, rootsy, and almost punk approach to country rock and for Nichols' smoky, emotional vocal style. During breaks from Lucero, Nichols began recording more acoustic-based material, and in 2009 he recorded an EP titled The Last Pale Light in the West, which featured a stripped-down trio of Nichols on acoustic guitar and vocals, Rick Steff on accordion and piano, and Todd Bean on pedal steel and electric guitar. The seven songs on The Last Pale Light in the West are all based on characters and situations drawn from Cormac McCarthy's novel, Blood Meridian. Now let's listen to the title track to Ben Nichols' 2009 EP, The Last Pale Light in the West. In my hands, I hold the ashes In my veins, black bedrooms In addition to his solo EP, Ben Nichols has also recorded songs for several movies by his brother, celebrated filmmaker and Arkansan Jeff Nichols. Now let's hear a song that Ben recorded for his brother Jeff's 2011 movie, Take Shelter, a song called Shelter. See those storm clouds rolling in Just like I knew it would be again Midnight sky at noon today A shelter still so far away Oh, 
Let's take a listen to two more songs by Ben Nichols that he recorded for his brother Jeff's 2012 movie that was filmed in Arkansas, Mud. Here are Davy Brown and The Kid. Shotgun assault on town String of them ears for Davy Brown Won't step out of that hangman's news Gonna take them all what you want to come for you With his solo EP and film soundtrack work, Ben Nichols has also recorded songs for television programs and scripted series. Let's listen to Ben's song, This Old Death, which appeared in the TV series The Walking Dead in 2014. Now let's finish up our tribute to Ben Nichols with a song that he contributed to an Arkansas music compilation in 2008. It's called Dog Day Nights. For tickets and more information to the June 21st Ben Nichols concert at the Cal's Ron Robinson Theater, please visit ArkansasSounds.org. School's Out, an exhibition of student work by the Arkansas Art Educators, will be open at Second Friday Art Night tonight from 5 to 8 p.m. in the Butler Center Galleries. The exhibition will be displayed through Saturday, August 27th. The exhibition features artwork in a variety of media created by kindergarten through 12th grade students throughout Arkansas. The Arkansas Art Educators is a statewide organization of art teachers. They advocate for art education by supporting legislation, and they seek to provide quality professional development for art instructors. In addition, Doss Loop will perform experimental music in the galleries. 
Butler Center Galleries is located at 401 President Clinton Avenue on the first floor of the Arkansas Studies Institute building on the Cal's main library campus. Second Friday Art Night is a monthly opportunity to visit downtown Little Rock's galleries, museums, and businesses for an after-hours gallery walk. Visit butlercenter.org art for more information. Let's take a look at genealogy at the Butler Center in a segment we call, Who You? When it comes to genealogy, the most important thing is who are you? You are important. Knowing where you come from and who are your ancestors is important to your story. We want you to understand how deep your roots are in whatever state you live, from wherever state you were born, or from whatever country you come. We want you to know just how wide and varied a family you have. Personal genealogy assistance is free and always available from the Central Arkansas Library System's Butler Center for Arkansas Studies. Regardless of where your ancestors are from, we'll help you find your family's history. I am Rhonda Stewart, the genealogy and local history specialist at the Butler Center. In this week's Who You?, I interview Maria Hoskins. Maria Hoskins was a senior staff member of Congressman Vic Snyder and has worked in community outreach for over 25 years. She's a native of Mayflower and a graduate of Philander Smith College. We asked her about her family history and about her upcoming publication. First of all, let me do this. Let me ask you who you are. Well. And by that introduction, I mean, who are you? Whose child are you? Whose resident are you? What state, all of that? Well, as you said, Maria Hoskins, and uh, I'm a proud Arkansan by the way of my dad being in military and getting the opportunity to hop here and there all over the U.S., United States, but Mayflower, Arkansas was home. That's where my mother, Berthenia Gill, grew up, and that's where she found the consistency of always bringing us back home. So that's who I am, and that's where these stories develop from, is from right out of Mayflower, Arkansas. Mayflower. So what is the title of the uh, book you've prepared? Oh, I'm anxious and excited to, to be here today. So we can talk about Down Home in Arkansas, a family reunion story, which could not have existed without the Butler Center in Central Arkansas Library System, and specifically the research available here at the Butler Center Studies. So does your family have family reunions? Every other year. Every other it's year. A and who tradition. is this family? This family is the Collins family, the Broyles-Collins family. So we had to, to reach back, um, go all the way back to South Carolina right, and bring it all the way down to Arkansas where... Um, see, my grandmother did deceased in 1973. She would have been 100 her birthday. So around 1873, her birth in South Carolina. And then years later, she transitioned and came down to Arkansas. And from there, built a huge farm. And there is the, we call it the Broyles Collins Farm because her maiden name was Broyles. Okay. Um, so she raised 18 children. Some of hers and some of her sister Mary's who had deceased. So the majority of hers. And out of these 18 children, listening to the stories 
from my mom. Of, and I actually had an opportunity to be around my grandma. And let me back up. Grandmother was really my great-grandmother, if you know a lot of our Big history. Yeah. That's right, you know. Uh, uh, young ladies were having children young, and, and what a lot of times would happen, grandma raised some of the children. Right. So my mother was raised by my grandmother, uh, my great-grandmother, her grandmother, and such I got firsthand knowledge of some of this family history. So, But it was great to know that our family continue with this annual tradition of getting together, even on a yearly basis or now as a biannual basis, uh, and bringing those stories back to life. How does it reflect on the new generations when those reunions happen? Awesome, because now they are start, they're paying attention. So they're like, oh, what what is our heritage and where did this piece come in from? So grandma was down. And so, so they're asking all of these questions. And we have those in the family, some of our, our senior family members that are really getting into the research. I mean, they're going finding documents. And, and my mother spends a lot of time right here at the Butler Center going down researching what she can find out about the Collins and the Broils uh, that she didn't know about. But she's been able to access and communicate with other family members to put all the pieces of the pie together. So yeah. what are some of the documents you've been able to find at the Butler Center? Uh, I wish Berthina Gill was here to tell me what those documents were. Okay. But they keep sending me files. I know they found marriage wills, wills, marriage records. They found wills uh, that actually stated, and which blew my mind, was the copy of the will that said, from grandmother's uh, mother's father said to my mulatto children, I want to leave uh, and make sure they're all educated. So a woman born in about 1873, can you think about 20 years later that she actually graduated from Fisk University and every one of her sisters and brothers went to college back at that time. So that was like amazing to me, you know. And that's a, a story that should be shared through generations, Yes, just that love of education. Yeah. So with the Butler Center as your background, yeah. what did you do to prepare yourself to write this book? Okay, in writing this book, and I found that writing these children's stories, Rhonda, had become easy because, and I, very enjoyable because I'm, I'm thinking about all those wonderful, fun times I had growing up. Uh, so in preparing to write the story, I'm just thinking about what, what did we do at our family union? You know, and I'm looking at everybody as this family reunion takes place and these visions are sticking in my mind. You know, like went to the National Park, State Park, and the Central High, and going to uh, the Pinnacle Mountain, and, and going to um, uh, the uh, uh, Clinton Library. So we're able to pick these points, and as we're educating our younger family members on our history, we're also trying to bring in the education of what is Arkansas, the whole tie in the whole Arkansas piece. What is important about the history of Arkansas? Why is it important for you to capture a small piece of that history and put it in this book? For continuing generations. For continuing generations. For continuing generations, you know. Uh, we live where we are now. But if we don't write down these experiences and these memories that we have, then our my children and my children's children, they won't have a clue about their family history. Is your story the only story that's worthy? 
No, all of our stories are worthy. And I encourage our students as I'm going to schools and I'm reading and I'm talking to them, encourage y'all to read and write their stories, even as little folks. I say, you all experience things that you just love. I said, so write it down now, because guess what? 20, 30 years up the road, you might not remember that. But 20, 30 years up the road, you might pick up that story that you wrote and thought, that's good, and I'm going to elaborate on that. So every story is a great story. As you were writing this book, what family members came to your mind that are no longer here? Uh, the first one that came to my mind is Grandma Ella Collins. And she was that matriarch of the family. She was the, um, you think about that strong woman who had to care and take care of 18 children, raise them up. And after a certain point, um, Grandpa Samuel Collins got uh, rollers on his feet and he decided to take off. So he left and left her there to raise the children. So she was strong at a huge farm, 40-acre farm, doing cotton and beans and peas and whatever she could, making butter, raising cows and pigs and chickens and horses. She did it all. And then she had a son, my favorite. I don't have, they would have to be mad at me, but I have to say it, Uncle Otis. Their Uncle, Uncle Otis comes in. <laughs> Uncle Otis goes off to missionary school in, um, in Detroit, Michigan, and comes back to Arkansas to help his mother finish taking care of the farm. And so goes. So he was that steadfast person the community everybody could go to get the greens from. Uh, he makes sorghum molasses. And, and that picture, and I still have that picture in my mind, and our mother also, she captured a picture of him and other men from the community out there moving that sorghum, moving that sorghum around. And if my daughter hadn't seen that picture, she wouldn't have a clue what a sorghum meal was and how to, how to make sorghum molasses. Right. Yeah. So watching these members of your family run a business yes. prepared you to also run a business, correct? And you know what? Who would have ever thought? You know, and you're absolutely right. And, and as we're talking here, I'm just saying, you know, you're absolutely right. I had actual visual to see and watch my grandmother make butter, package it. People come sit, buy it, eggs. And you know what? You're absolutely right. So today I already had that implanted in my mind. And uh, that is probably why the drive comes from me to really want to do good and be organized and, and uh Treat people good so they want to come back and, right. and patronize you. Yeah. Hadn't yeah. even thought about that. That's a good one. <laughs> so your book is complete now, right? The book is in its final stage. It's at the graphic designer getting the pages are being laid out. And uh, all the pretty uh, prettiness is being put into the book. So uh, soon we'll have a book that is ready to be presented to the public. And I'm looking forward to sharing it with students and families across the United States, but specifically here in Arkansas. Okay, so it's not limited to the state of Arkansas. Other yeah. people can also yes. feel what's in this book and relate it to where they came from and what they, they knew growing up. Exactly, and Rhonda, um, and, and, and I want to make sure that that happens and do all I can to because even though it says down home in Arkansas, a family reunion story, like I said, people get together with their families and family reunions 
all across this nation. My story, even though it's my story, but the story relates to everybody. It's not just my story, it's everybody's story. You know, we may be talking about Pacific places here in Arkansas, but families get together, the story relates to everybody and however they get together. And it gives them in the back of the book, so you so you have the story. Then after the story, you have an opportunity for them to see their family tree fan, to fill in. So all these activities. So while the family's sitting there together, they can start thinking and doing the activities and filling in the blanks and uh, have a fun time learning about their family history. And then on the very tail end of the book, then they have these wonderful research sites. Thank you to the Butler Center that have provided uh, like um, Ancestry.com and the FamilySearch.org and all these sites that even as children and students, they won't feel um, hesitant to go start looking. They won't feel intimidated. They can start at this place to start finding out a little bit more about how to learn more about their family. Okay, on a personal level, how was the research room helpful to you as far as putting together your book or developing the process you were going through to put together this book? Yeah, no, very, very helpful. And then more helpful then is have the opportunity to sit down one-on-one. You know, I was amazed that I actually could sit down with you and you could talk to me in versus uh, I get a little intimidated when I go into the library too and they don't know it's like where do I start from you know so much information uh, but to have guidance uh, that so was library, very important to me. the library yeah. provided guidance yes and that's good that's one of the things cows wants yeah. is for their staff to provide guidance to the people that walk in the door so that was done on your part right yes you ma'am. received that guidance yes. and now you're producing something that would not only help us as a library because we hope to carry your book, but also the state of Arkansas because you have documented a story that has not been told in the way that you are telling your story. That was Maria Hoskins talking to me about her upcoming publication, Down Home in Arkansas, A Family Reunion Story, published by CNV Four Seasons Publishing. You can order a copy at the website seasons2dream.com. You can request copies of Maria Hoskins' other books, Grandma's Thanksgiving Dinner and Christmas Night on the Farm and Any Cow's Location. You have been listening to Who You on Radio Cows. The staff at Central Arkansas Library System is always available to help you discover who are you. This month in Arkansas history... On June 4, 1954, the Arkansas Educational Television Network, AETN, began with the creation of the Arkansas Educational Television Association. This was a citizens group interested in establishing a non-commercial alternative to the growing commercial television enterprise. Its mission includes offering lifelong learning opportunities to all Arkansans, supplying instructional programs to Arkansas schools, enhancing the lives of Arkansas citizens, and illuminating the culture and heritage of Arkansas and the world. Land made available at Arkansas State Teachers College, now the University of Central Arkansas, in Conway, was instrumental in the establishment of these operations, as was the provision of significant financial support from the Conway Corporation. 
Radio Cows is a production of the Central Arkansas Library System's Community Outreach Department, as well as its Arkansas History Department, the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies. For more information, please visit cows.org and butlercenter.org. Radio Cows was produced this week by Kate Shagnon, John Miller, Laura Neal, Rhonda Stewart, David Strickland, and Glenn Whaley. Voices by Kate Shagnon, John Miller, Karen Reisinger, and Jasmine Joe. Engineering and editing by Michael Stotts and Anna Lancaster. Our production manager is Glenn Whaley. Our executive producers are Leanne Blackwell-Hoskin and David Strickland. For Radio Cows, I'm John Miller. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week, Friday at noon, here on KABF 88.3 Little Rock.